I'm Alicia Michalisa Kurtz, and welcome back to Real Talk, a place where healthcare workers share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. On today's episode, we'll hear a story from Dr. Hartwell Lynn, an emergency doctor from California who told his story live at a Real Talk session last year. When we started Real Talk, it was because we share this belief that people's stories are an imperative part of any wellness program we design in healthcare. Why? Because understanding each other as people is key to truly understanding our teammates, to, to building that culture of wellness we must strive for if we're really gonna fix the rates of burnout and compassion fatigue amongst people working in medicine. We all have very different backgrounds, stories about where we came from and what we've been through that shape the lens through which we see the world every day. Stories that create context for our experiences that are at least somewhat unique to each individual. The people you know, the mistakes you've made, places you've been, lessons you've learned, and of course, perhaps one of the most influential things, the imprint left on us by our parents or the people that raised us. No matter how old we get, their effect on our lives is lasting. Now, with that said, I will acknowledge that the older I get and the more people I meet, the more I realize relationships with parents are often complicated. Sure, there are plenty of people out there who really look up to their parents and who want to emulate the person their mother or father or grandparent was, but certainly at least during our adolescence, most everyone goes through a period where we have our eyes set on becoming a grown-up that is nothing like these people. Sure, you love them and you appreciate what they've done for you, but they're so lame. Or maybe they work too hard or they don't work enough or they are too strict or they don't seem to care enough or if they do care, they seem to care about all the wrong things in your opinion or whatever other imperfections that you see through your teen or early 20-something-year-old wisdom that drives you to create your own life that is different from the one that you grew up in, at least in some ways. And maybe as you age, sure, you change your mind and you come back to this place where you really wanna be like your parents now. But in other cases, maybe you don't. It all just really depends on what those things were about these elders of yours that you rejected. Were these feelings temporary and transient, melting away with your youth, or were they deep and lasting? Things that ultimately drove you further away. But in either case, whether we are actively trying to become like our parents or not, do we ever really shake the influence they had on us? This is Hartwell's story. So um, my parents uh, immigrated to the U.S. to go to grad school. And uh, after my dad got his PhD in structural engineering, he actually worked in a different job until he actually found his, his true calling, which was teaching. He actually taught at Cal State Fullerton down south for a few years. And so, you know, he really grew up with very little means in Taiwan. And so he had this really voracious sort of work ethic. Uh, and so when we were growing up, that's sort of how we knew our dad. He was always at work. We didn't really get to see him a whole lot. Um, when I was 12, we actually moved to Taiwan as a whole family uh, so he could actually take on a teaching position in, at a university in Taiwan. And for me, that was a pretty interesting time. I had to go to public school there and had to learn how to use the abacus, which was kind of cool. And I mean, the reason why they had an abacus, why they taught the abacus in Taiwan back then was because this was really a developing country and they just didn't have like calculators back then. So they had to use the abacus. 
And that was largely the case unless you were the son of a college professor that had just immigrated to Taiwan. And so the way I learned how to use the abacus was to have the abacus on the table, have my calculator on my lap <laughs> under the table. And, and really for the longest time, my classmates and teachers were just astounded how good I was at the abacus, <laughs> despite actually only using it for a year. Um, but anyways, after a couple years, uh, my mom actually moved us back to the States and my dad stayed in Taiwan to continue his teaching position. And so, you know, from my perspective, he was definitely sort of a workaholic. He had some things he liked to do outside of work, but work was largely sort of what he did. And then, you know, I think as we're growing up uh, in this sort of traditional quintessential immigrant family, we were basically like really encouraged. Actually, we were kind of like told that we were going to go into medicine and that's just, that's just where it's going to be. And so my middle sister, Paige, she's actually a doctor of pharmacy now at Kaiser down in Southern California. And my youngest sister, Jeanette, she is an adult congenital cardiologist at UCLA. And so I think we were all sort of pushed towards medicine. Uh, for me, you know, when I was in high school, I really wasn't leaning that direction. And so the reason why I got into medicine is because my parents kind of bribed me. And they said that if I started going down the medicine path, that they would buy me a car. And since I really, really wanted a car, I applied to a couple of sort of a combined college medical programs in the country. And surprisingly, um, I got my car. <laughs> so it's a 1989 Toyota Foreigner, had like a five-speed manual, had a tape deck. I think most people here know what a tape deck is. Uh, had like, uh, you know, a removable top, had a roll bar. I was like, it was cool. I was loving life. So anyways, I go to this program in, in upstate New York, and in the second year of my program, I actually got a call from home that my dad had suffered a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, his first one. And during the whole workup, it turns out he had an inoperable AVM. And so we spent the next few years really trying to get the seizures under control. He was maxed out on Dilantin, and that didn't work, and he tried Depakote, and that didn't work. There's this brand new medicine back then called Topamax, and that didn't work. And ultimately, he had just come to realization that he was going to have to live with this disorder. And it's actually really devastating. He was maxed out on Dilantin, which actually affected his cognition. So you can imagine the impact of that when you're a college professor. And he, the one thing he loved to do outside of work was I could drive. And he couldn't do that. And he, despite all these medicines, he would still have seizures like two to three times a month. And it got to the point, actually, where like the students in his class would know what to do if he had a seizure in class. You know, lay him down. Don't call an ambulance. And if it's during a test, there's no cheating while he's post-ictal. Like, that was like the rule of the classroom. They just made it very, very clear. And, you know, he could have like claimed like a medical disability. He could have just said, you know, I'm going to retire early because of his condition. But, but he just refused to do so. And when we asked him, like, hey, dad, why aren't you doing this? He's like, you know, what do you want me to do? Just kind of sit here and look outside the window until I die? And like that was, his, that was like his mantra. He was like, work was his thing. But in actuality, in 2005, he's actually said, I'm, at the age of 60, he's like, I'm retiring. And he spent that next year sort of traveling around the world with my mom. And all the, the three kids were like, yes, this is great. He's finally like, you know, going to retire. He's finally going to enjoy life. He's been working so hard. And so we were like super happy. And then actually in October of 2006, he actually came to visit us. And he visited his first grandchild, my son, Ben. Uh, he went back to Taiwan. And about a month later, he had a seizure in the bathtub at home and he died. So, you know, I kind of went back up a little bit. I think when we're growing up, one of the things that we always sort of try to do is try to be better than our parents, right? That's sort of like a natural tendency. And so from my perspective, my dad was like a total workaholic. And so when it came time for me to like pick what I was gonna do in terms of medicine, 
it was going to be like, I'm, I'm, when I'm off, I'm off. I'm never on call. And like, I can just kind of do whatever I want. And so after explaining to my parents how emergency medicine was like a real specialty, <laughs> you know, like dermatology, like ophthalmology, like they, they knew very well. Um, I actually did my residency. And after a couple different groups, I actually joined CEP back in 2002. And I think during the first few years of my career, I was just so like focused to like not be my dad. Like I was just going to go to work and then just enjoy life. But it was just so sad that, you know, he like worked so hard. And like finally when he was about to enjoy the fruits of his labor, this, everything, he just kind of died suddenly. And so that's, I wasn't going to be that guy. But, you know, the thing is this, I mean, when you're taking care of people, it just doesn't really work clocking in and clocking out. Right. I mean, we all have worked more shifts than we wanted to when, you know, when we're working short staff or there was a sick call. Um, I, I think I remember there was like a problem we had with like lab. And so I was like, oh, I'll just join the committee and we'll try to come up with a solution. And we said, so we did that. I was like, kind of cool. We came up with a solution and like patient care got better, which is kind of neat. And I think, oh, someone needs to be the assistant medical director. Who's going to do that? I was like, all right, I guess I'll do that. I'll just kind of volunteer and kind of do that. And then there's a medical director role came up. I was like, well, I guess I was the assistant director. So I guess I should not be the medical director and do that. And then um, the chief of staff role became available. And so I just started doing that. And the next thing I know, I'm like taking a nap in my car in the hospital parking lot after finishing a shift at 2 a.m. So I can make it to a 7 a.m. meeting the next day. And when I realized, you know, so you know, you know that saying, you know, despite our best efforts, the patient did fine. Is, there, is that just me? Do I, is that just me? Or is that right? Okay. Right. So despite my best efforts to like not be my dad, like basically the apple just felt like straight down. Right, and so now I'm one of the regional directors for Vituity. Um, I'm on the board. I'm definitely, you know, missed lots of family events. I've definitely caught myself checking emails at the dinner table. You know, the uh, the whole concept that this is really cool. You get to work nights and weekends, so that when you're off, you're off when everybody else is working. This is great. It works great when you're single. It's not so great when you have like a family of four and everybody else is on a Monday through Friday daytime schedule and you're not. So, you know, when I sit back and sort of realize, you know, how the heck did I get here? For me, it was actually, I just got lucky. You know, I actually went into medicine because I wanted a 1989 Toyota 4Runner, <laughs> right? But I actually like fell into this job that was like truly awesome and like I really love. I mean, I love the clinical side of medicine. I love the people that I work with. I love sort of our organization. I love our mission. I love sort of the administrative side of things. And so for me, it really helped me realize, you know, that my dad actually truly loved what he did as well. He loved to teach. He loved to kind of just kind of leave his mark in the world. And the sadness I had that he died suddenly and then before he really got to enjoy life really kind of changed this gratitude that despite seizures really not allowing him to enjoy things outside of work, he actually truly enjoyed the work that he did. And so Ben, he's now 13, uh, my daughter's now 10, and I'm pretty sure they don't see me as a cool dad. And they probably think that I'm like a total workaholic and someday when they become like no-adult teenagers, which they're getting very close to, they're going to say, I don't want to be anything like him, which I get. And you know what? I'm, I'm actually okay with that. I just really hope that they find their path, their calling in life, that they just can't help but like get more involved and more invested. And that's certainly like a gift that I think my dad gave me. You know, I'm just not going to buy them a car <laughs> to like drive them into it. I mean, I don't think I will. Well, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. In his story, Hartwell reminds us of that saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
And certainly in some ways, that's always true. There are looks and mannerisms, the sound of your voice, some of our views or beliefs or habits that are deeply instilled in us from childhood and that stay with us as adults in an unavoidable way, which keeps us linked to our families, whether we like it or not. And sometimes the things we thought were so bad about the people who raised us, like Hartwell's dad and how much he worked, that he never took vacations or relaxed enough, sometimes those things end up being exactly the things that we choose for ourselves too. In part because we didn't understand them when we were younger. Hartwell didn't realize until he was well into his career that his father actually enjoyed working. He loved teaching, and to him, that was living his life with maximum enjoyment. And despite wanting to be nothing but a shift worker who clocks in and clocks out and then takes all this leisure time for himself, Hartwell caught that same bug his dad did, that love of his job to the point that he is now a self-proclaimed workaholic, whose children probably look at him and think this is the exact thing they do not want when they grow up. So it wasn't actually that Hartwell didn't want to be like his father. It was that Hartwell didn't understand his father until he himself had taken a similar path in his own career. He, as the apple to his father's tree, fell straight down. But while we all keep parts of our parents or of the people who raised us deeply embedded in who we are, not all apples will stick by their parent tree. Some of them take off and roll away. So what about you? Did you turn out to be a lot like your parents or not really? And if you did, was it on purpose or something you came by unintentionally and realized later on in life? What's something about your parents that you remember disliking when you were younger? How do you feel about that thing now? Is it something that you yourself have adopted or become? Or is it something you haven't, but you understand better? Or is it something that you still actively dislike and are trying hard not to repeat? Were your parents your heroes or a motivation for you to be something else? In any case, whatever your relationship, what is something about you that 100% unequivocally is a result of the way you were raised and the influence of the people who raised you? Here at Real Talk, we absolutely appreciate that parenting is tough. And we admire the way many of our friends and colleagues are doing their very best to raise the next generation of people in our world who will be better than our parents, better than us, and who will make the next century on earth better than the last one. Thank you to Hartwell Lynn for sharing his story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, and to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer. To all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or figure out how to bring Real Talk to your residency program? Head to www.vituity.com forward slash Real Talk for more information. Or email us at realtalk at v-i-t-u-i-t-y dot com.